Hello, welcome to part two of Homo Sapiens. We're talking LGBT History Month, The Pink Pound, the history of The Pink Pound with Justin Bengry. If you haven't heard part one, go back. It's got loads of good stuff at the beginning. When you were talking about Oscar Wilde and the trials, one of the first instances of The Pink Pound, tell me a bit more about that. The way people were dressed became a thing. Well, I think clothes have always been, uh, uh, have often been a marker Mm. of difference. Um, And we can see that in queer history throughout the 20th century. So certainly I I use the example of the use of fashion or the knowledge that fashion could be a signal and could be compromising because of the Oscar Wilde trials in the middle of the 1890s. But this continues throughout the entire century. Um, Was a really useful way for, for men to signal signal their desires, signal the fact that they weren't just like other men to other Mm. men. And something as simple as a red tie was uh, long a code that some would recognize. That's that's another one that comes up through the 20th century. So, I mean, this is the thing. Once you know these codes and you're looking at, say, visual media from the period, if you start seeing someone that's that's in a red tie, uh, a pastel-colored jumper, their hair is dyed and waved a certain way. You can start recognizing that had meaning for the people that could look at it at the time. Some of those mm. meanings have been lost to us. And it's only sort of immersion in historical sources that you get some sense of that. And I'm sure some of them will never be recovered. There's things I'm sure that I flip right past and don't see it. Mm. There's also language. What I found in some of the other magazines, uh, men's magazines, again, in the 1930s, by which time they they resembled more closely what we understand to be a men's lifestyle magazine, um, they could sometimes use uh, language codes that had subcultural meaning, but they continued mm. to use visual codes as well because they knew there were some men that would understand them. That is so fascinating that you kind of had to visually occupy some of these codes in order to find other people like you, whereas now in certain parts of the world where it's less of a problem people don't have to do that so then actually i feel like i wonder if there's something in the idea that gay men specifically again sort of now try and copy the looks of straight men more than they used to because it feels like that's slightly moved i remember standing in a club some time ago um and someone just saying like god everyone seems straight in here it's so different to when i went out i was with someone older than me well, I think something that's, there's a few things that are interesting there. I think one is also, so I've looked at the period as well. So again, jumping ahead another couple of decades, fifties mm. and sixties, where some of these queer styles and queer fashions were being reinterpreted for mainstream, ostensibly straight audiences. Mm. So I've been, I've been really interested in, in the work that was going on by fashion producers in West Soho, people like Vince, who had a boutique since the 1950s, um, just off Carnaby Street, and later John mm-hmm. Stephen, who really jump-started the whole Carnaby Street phenomenon. John Stephen had trained and worked in some of the earlier queer boutiques and, and recognized that some of this stuff could be, uh, could be sold more widely and less expensively and really transformed how we understood queer styles to exist at that time and started mm. to reinterpret that for a youth audience that wanted to distinguish itself from the sort of more, the, from their fathers, from the more boring sort of short back and sides type of people and had more money. The new category of the teenager came into being from the 1950s as a kind of cultural phenomenon with greater employment, with greater disposable income, and with opportunities to purchase. And people like John Stephen tapped into that and started reinterpreting what had previously been relatively underground queer styles. He reinterpreted those as edgy and creative, as young and youthful, 
and basically started selling queer styles to non-queer people. And there's interesting wow. interviews with gay and queer men from the 1960s, say, saying, well, there used to be a time when I could, I could figure out who was gay. And now they're all wearing what we used to wear. I can't make heads nor tails of, 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 of who's queer and who isn't, or who's gay and who isn't. How funny. And back around this time, the, the first time we're talking about the, the first instances of seeing the pink pound and all of that, where was transness in its visibility? Was it mm. any, anywhere to be seen or anyone else, you know, any other people on the spectrum? Because I feel like gay men always seem to get the most visibility. Well, and you know what? I wonder about that because I've been, I've been increasingly thinking about the individuals that I identified in that early sort of 1900-ish article. And I'm wondering to what extent these are individuals who rather than signaling sexuality are signaling gender difference. Mm-hmm. And I think looking back at some of these historical sources where they're just being described by others, we can't necessarily fully disentangle that. Mm-hmm. But the question now must be asked, would these individuals now more rightly be understood as gender nonconforming individuals, as potentially mm-hmm. trans individuals? I think that's a really, really fruitful question. And one that I think historians have to go back and revisit a lot of our sources and a lot of our previous writing and ask where trans and gender nonconformity was hiding in plain sight and was a little bit too quickly assumed simply to be an expression of sexual difference. Mm. Well, that could be your next PhD after the <laughs> candle one. Oh, I hope you've got funding for all of these. They're, a PhD <laughs> isn't cheap these days. <laughs> no, you're right. That's why I've never done one. Um, <laughs> so, We'd, you know, we've spoken about the first instance there and its tendrils elsewhere. Take me to the next moment in that history. Sure, sure. I would say, first of all, though, we should be careful not to call those first examples I'm giving as the mm-hmm. first incidents of this yes. relationship. It's the first that I'm bringing up because of just where I have to set dates for my research. But there could easily be arguments that go further back in terms Mm. of, say, the sale of certain topics in books, or I think there's an argument to be made about the sale of notices and broadsheets that are reporting on sodomy trials, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, those could be, those, those could be sold as well. And I think there's, there's an argument to be made that if you are selling stories in this earlier 19th or 18th century format, that are benefiting from the salacious details of sodomy trials in order to sell these broadsheets, in order to sell these notices. Mm. There's, there's some prehistory, pre, pre, prehistory of the pink pound, the pink shilling, the pink farthing, something or other, <laughs> um, going on back then as well. So, yeah, we'll come on to this in a bit, but just to, while you're saying that, I will just mention it briefly is that Something about queerness has always been linked to scandal, hasn't Ooh. it? But we'll come to that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but is it, yeah, is there a logical next bit of the pink pound history to talk about here? I suppose there's moments where we can salvage and excavate this history. Um, mm-hmm. One that I'm really interested in is I'm also really interested in book publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's because I'm still desperately trying to publish my own book <laughs> um, that What's I have sympathy. Oh, my, the Pink Pound. <laughs> okay, good, good. One of several, actually, okay. but one is on the Pink Pound. That's the one that's the closest to uh, to getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's 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 int- it was very interesting for me to go into the business records of book publishers 
and look behind the scenes at internal documents and memos that they never intended to see the light of day um, and that were never published. They were never publicized. And they give quite candid evaluations of the books and manuscripts that were being submitted to the publishing house. Um, and, mm. and we're very lucky that many of these remain. Um, and I've looked at, at, at a number that are now, what, a hundred odd years old. And so I came upon discussions, um, in 1917 of a book that was submitted by the author Rose Alatini called The Ishmaelites, um, to her publisher, uh, Stanley Unwin. The book traced the story of Dennis Blackwood, who was a homosexual pacifist in the First World War. Mm-hmm. You can imagine how well they thought that was going to go over in the First World War, which was yeah. exactly the content of their discussions about it. On the one hand, they said, this is a really interesting book that's talking about really relevant topics, but whoa, we're going to get in trouble with the law if we publish this. What's this balance between the profitability of selling this queer pacifist story versus the danger of fines that we might face um, and trial costs that we might face. And they Mm -hmm. really did evaluate this back and forth. And there were disagreements um, for months at uh, Allen and Unwin about how to proceed with this, with this book. In the end, they elected uh, not to publish it. Uh, and instead sent it on to the pacifist publisher, C.W. Daniel, um, at which time it almost, uh, uh, well, he published it under a different name, uh, Despised and Rejected, and the author used the pseudonym A.T. Fitzroy, um, mm-hmm. and it was published in 1918 and was um, immediately tried under the Defense of the Realm Act for prejudicing recruitment in His Majesty's army. Wow. So it was found guilty of those crimes that related more to its pacifist content. But even the judge at the time said, well, I'm not being asked to speak about its, its, its morality, but let me tell you what I think. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, it was condemned by him and others for its homosexual content as well. So throughout this process, there's a discussion about the profitability of the book, who's going to buy it, that sort of scandal of homosexual topics. Um, it later transpired that C.W. Daniel was had to put together a um, uh, a fund to pay for this enormous fine that he was subject to from the trial, and in his correspondence, I I have a letter uh, from a man called Viscount Harburton, um, mm. who very clearly identifies the multiple markets of the book. Viscount Harburton tells C W Daniel, "You need to push it for all it's worth at this point because you need to get the funds to pay off the fine." People are going to be interested in the book because of its scandal of, uh, uh, of the topic mm. and of the trial, and they're going to want to consume that. There's also going to be others who will see in it their own lives. And he talks about the Bulgarians are going to want to buy it. <laughs> and now he's not talking the, about southern, southeastern Europeans being particularly interested in queer themes in books. He's yeah. using, he's using a euphemism that people in circa 1918 would have understood to mean what we would today call queer men, Bulgarians sort of suggesting buggers. Uh, uh. And he says the Bulgarians are going to want to read this too, and they're going to buy the book. Clearly identifying a group in this case of uh, uh, of queer men who will see in it their own lives and will buy it for that reason. God, it's amazing, isn't it? Because it, it's interesting that now so now for example publishing is trying to get behind people in their individual stories and we look at a lot of the breakout books of the past year and they've been incredible stories of individual experiences from people who have previously operated on the margins like 
beautiful trans books, gay male books, but it's about the publisher getting behind that person's story and showing, giving it light. Whereas this feels like the discussion was quite cynical, you know, that like there's enough scandal here. It wasn't about trying to give this person's voice some air. It was about the scandal here that could be monopolized on. I think it's more complicated for the publishers. I mean, mm-hmm. C.W. Daniel had taken incredible personal risk to publish the book and was really invested in the topic of pacifism and really felt he was doing profoundly important work during the course of the First World War. Um, Stanley Unwin uh, obviously passed on the book because he thought it was too risky, but he also was the publisher of Edward Carpenter. And Edward Carpenter mm. was uh, probably the most important uh, homosexual, socialist, vegetarian uh, activist of the first, for, well, he died in the 20s, so the first quarter of the 20th century. Um, mm. And Stanley Unwin stood up for him a number of times against the authorities and defended um, the books that he was publishing that that advocated for equality among the sexes, about, well, what he would refer to as uh, the intermediate sex, um, mm-hmm. referring to, to, to um, what we would understand as queerness, um, possibly of gender nonconformity as well. So in other instances, Stanley Unwin, to give one example, was not so cynical and not selling scandal, but actually defending the need for his author's books to be um, circulating and read and valued. Mm. That's not to say that there weren't other publishers and, and presses that were nothing but cynical. So, I mean, that, mm. that, that, there's a really great example from the 1930s. To step back a second, in 1928, Radcliffe Hall's book, The Well of Loneliness, one of the most important and famous books with lesbian content from the uh, first half of the 20th century, was published and subsequently tried as an obscene libel and banned in this country for another two two decades. Um, three years later, in 1933, someone called Mr. Fudge um, at something called the Mitre Press wrote to a Montague Smith at, I think, the Daily Mail saying, we've got a book that's like The Well of Loneliness, and we'd like you to condemn it in the in your in your paper. We'd like you to say as bad as you can what an awful book it is, and we indemnify you against any action. But just make sure make sure you really go full throttle on saying this is a disgusting book. Wow. So it's clear that the uh, 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 the publishers at the Mitre Press figured out that lesbian scandal was really lucrative, and mm. having their book condemned in the press would drum up interest from wider mm. audiences. We don't know yeah. what that book eventually was. The file I found the file of the National Archives um, and the Director of Public Prosecutions decided not to take any action because they hadn't yet seen the book and didn't know if it was obscene. Um, mm. And after that, the trail runs cold. But what we do see is very canny, savvy capitalists recognizing that queer scandal is saleable and they're going to exploit it for all they're worth. And I don't believe that... In that example, they have the motivation of sharing important stories and perspectives at the center of their motivation. (laughs) 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. It's really interesting how when I think of the pink pound, you know, I was joking about candles and all the rest of it, but sort of the the things that queer people are buying with their own free will and the things that they buy are happening because of a certain way they live their lives, for example. But one of the things that you've covered a lot, which is fascinating, is that the idea of actually scandal and queer people using their pink pound to buy stories that actually make them come across as salacious and all of that unwittingly in some respects well yeah and i think the um the 1950s and 1960s tabloids are a really great example of that um the tabloids in the 50s and 60s were engaged in uh circulation wars um to 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 surpass each other um and they recognized in the early 1950s having already explored Increasingly across the, the 30s and 40s, increasing discussions of, of, of sex and sexuality, say venereal disease during the war, and other what they saw as public service kind of things like traffic safety. Um, in the 1950s, they started exploring the danger of homosexuality more, more actively, more vocally and more loudly. And this was spearheaded, um, especially by the Sunday Pictorial, which was the, uh, the Sunday edition of the Daily Mirror. That's not mm. to say they invented this, but it's to say that they took a primary spot in this movement in the 1950s. And they published articles that were just vicious and vitriolic in their homophobia. And they weren't the only ones. Certainly other, other publishers, other, um, sorry, other newspapers did as well in this period. But what I think is really interesting is that when we consider that motivation to publish these terrible, vicious stories um, in the context of circulation wars, it's clearly a profit motivation that plays a substantial role um, in that movement, as well as the personal politics and morality of individual editors, publishers, authors, what have you, as well as a desire to use the topic of homosexuality as a critique against the government. And the pictorial at that time was very critical of Churchill's final government and was anti-conservative. I mean, we might find this a little bit strange that it's the, it's the, it's the paper it's the, the, that is more labor leaning that was very viciously against homosexuals and using them and employing them uh, to critique the conservative government. Um, but that's, that's politics in the 1950s. Mm. Um, but at the same time, in the context of all of those motivations on the side of the, the Sunday press, the fact remains that the vast majority of households in Britain took a newspaper and especially a Sunday paper. 
and by by necessity that includes LGBTQ people. And it's fascinating to think about queer people consuming those products that vilify them um, and spending their money to buy tabloids that spew hate and vitriol specifically against them. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been interesting looking at interviews and oral histories with, again, especially gay men from that time uh, that ask or at least bring up the topic of why they purchased those papers. And one reason is, like I said, everyone bought the papers, so so did they, because queer consumers are still consumers. Um, mm. and, and sometimes they consume in ways just like everybody else. Um, I still buy antihistamines and dish soap, even though I'm queer. <laughs> um, and, and they would buy uh, uh, the tabloids for the same reason. Yeah. Others bought these newspapers to see if the names of their friends appeared there or the names of people they knew. If, right. if someone had disappeared, is it because something happened to them? Um, mm. Or their names would be reported in the national press. They might have been in a case in uh, in Birmingham and have left home, say, in Plymouth. Well, you'll find out what's going on potentially because some of these papers named names, addresses, ages, and occupations and destroyed people's lives. Mm-hmm. So you might buy it to see to check up on your friends and hope every week that someone's name that you knew didn't show up. Others read it for erotic purposes. They would read about grave offenses with guardsmen or inappropriate activities in toilets. And this could be a kind of light erotic interest in the papers because right. it described activities and places and possibilities that maybe they were or weren't participating in themselves, but they could imagine and they knew the places and they could imagine those those situations. So there is, I think, the possibility that, well, you could walk down the street with the uh, the mirror and no one would think you're queer, but you could read the queer bits. Right. And also there's that thing of in those times particularly, um, it's almost like it would be a tough life to lead trying to live with principles of not consuming anything that did vilify you because it was everywhere, you know. Mm-hmm. You would you would not be able to get a newspaper. You You're just used to skipping over that stuff, you know. That's true, too. I mean, you just have to uh, uh, um, somehow protect yourself against it and read past it or or focus on other things. Or, I mean, I suppose, as so many of us do today on other issues, just there's only so much you can consume and you we click past it and they would have flipped past it. Absolutely. Yeah. But that translates through to now, does it? And if we think about the pink pound in more recent years, how has that evolved? Well, I suppose it can be more open in many ways, can't it? Um, mm. that, but then with that comes who is being validated? Who, in what ways is it being, is it being used cynically or supportively? What does it mean to slap a rainbow on an ad or mm. just to put two white cis gay men in a way that could suggest involvement between them, but not mm. confirm it? Um, mm. What does that mean? I mean, there's the other question that there may be companies and businesses that outwardly support LGBTQ issues or slap a rainbow on it or show up at whatever pride event. What do they do for their own employees? How mm. do they support their own employees? Um, what benefits do they get? Um, do they have safe workplaces if they're gay, lesbian, bi, or trans? All of those things. How are complaints internally handled if someone expresses concerns about homophobia and transphobia in that company. I mean, I think what's what the questions that we should be asking today in, in, in places like the UK is for those companies that vocally 
and outwardly say they are supportive of our communities, how does that operate behind the scenes where they're not getting praised? How does mm-hmm. that operate for their own employees where they have real power over people's employment and lives? Yeah, and there's a, there is a lot of hypocrisy around that that people you know are very good at pointing out. And, but when it comes to the Pink Pound today, and we think about brands backing Pride, for example, mm-hmm. what actually is it a brand is looking for by backing Pride? Why do they all want to do it? I mean, I suppose there's a number of motivations. I mean, perhaps, I mean, it depends on the brand, what they sell, what they're doing, who they, who they see their audience as. Um, are they, well, are they signaling to LGBTQ people, we support you and we'd like you to support us? Um, are they signaling to allies? We're the type of brand that's inclusive and share a wider commitment that maybe you share with us. Is it something beyond that? Is it just being seen to be on the right side of uh, uh, these debates and these issues. I mean, I think that's, I mean, there's so many factors that are involved um, today, let alone, as we've just been discussing, then some of the cynicism behind that and some of the internal policies behind that. But I mean, it comes down so much to individual products, individual uh, audiences that they're seeking and and what the motivation for that is. You're just saying, you know, it's become much more open and the radical change between now and over the hundreds of years we're talking about covering. How are we getting on today with redressing the wrongs of the past? You know, for example, Alan Turing and pardoning people over history who were, you know, punished and thrown into prison for being queer. And then obviously now there are pardons and things happening. But are we, how are we doing on that? It's moving in the right direction, but it's incomplete. And we need to continue to agitate for more. Um, mm-hmm. There are particularities of English law in particular that mean that many men who were convicted and cautioned for homosexual offenses are ineligible for pardons and ineligible for disregards, um, and their crimes remain intact, their lives remain disrupted, their employment opportunities remain endangered, imperiled because of those convictions that are in many cases decades old and in many cases not for any kind of sexual activity at all because um, the initial disregard and pardon legislation only referred to very specific um, criminal acts, buggery and gross indecency, and the related military uh, offenses. This left intact any conviction for um, uh, solicitation and importuning, which is what many, many, many men would have been convicted or cautioned for, and any activity that took place in a public toilet, which remains uh, criminal to this day, uh, or w- which remains illegal to this day. So that meant that under, under well, under the legislation as it stands, those that were convicted of solicitation and importuning, which could amount to chatting someone up, um, mm. their convictions remain largely intact. I've only heard of a couple exceptions where that was removed. There is legislation currently in like underway in discussion that would add solicitation to the list of crimes that are um, eligible for pardon and disregard. Um, but as far as I'm aware, that's still in discussion and that bill has not fully passed through Parliament. I was surprised to see it written about so positively um, mm-hmm. in the press, what, a month or so ago, as if it was a done deal. And then looking mm-hmm. to see that it was still just at the stage of being in debate in the Lords. Um, really? But like I said, that that's only... In addition, it's a good move if it goes through. It's it's moving in the right direction. It's deeply important, and it's incomplete. 
because like I said, so many men, well, so many men were, were convicted for offenses in toilets and those remain completely uh, uh, ineligible for any redress. And in some cases, those were not even sexual acts. Again, it comes down to if you were chatting someone up or perceived to be expressing interest, you're, you're not having any, you're not having sex. You're just communicating in ways that were deemed appropriate. Um, it seems that those offenses still remain or those convictions, um, and cautions remain intact and, mm. and will do for the foreseeable future. And when we, when we look at LGBTQ plus history month and the, the way that so much of queer history is either about queer men or like you were saying earlier the stories of people who were trans for example are actually concealed within other histories is there work being done by someone somewhere you know to try and revisit all that stuff and bring out the trans histories bring out the the marginal histories that were not you know trying to make it a bit more balanced is what i'm trying to say there's work being done, but of course it takes a long time to see the light of day. Um, and, um, and I mean, it, it remains true as well that women's history in general remains less supported, less funded, and less published, uh, than histories in which men dominate within the stories. Mm. Um, so that is only more the case in LGBTQ histories. There are amazing scholars working on lesbian histories, for instance, Rebecca Jennings at UCL, uh, Amy Tooth Murphy at uh, Royal Holloway, uh, Alison Oram spent a career working on this from, from Leeds, mm-hmm. uh, Leeds Beckett and other places. Um, so there are amazing scholars who have and are working on these topics, but the proportion of work being done on these topics uh, uh, still needs to increase and more needs to be done. And then when we get to trans histories, histories of non-binary people, um, histories of bisexuality, um, mm-hmm. as well, um, mm-hmm. who, 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 who make up a, a huge portion of our community, those histories are woefully neglected. And, um, there's limited work, uh, that's been done. And again, they're, they're subject to the same or to, or to similar, uh, uh, pressures around funding support employment of scholars working in those areas all of that which 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 slows down the production of that knowledge mm. i'm i'm optimistic though because in the the ma queer history that i run at goldsmiths i see a lot of my students really hungry for those histories and part of the work that i do is telling them that you need to be the ones to to be working on this you are building skills to tell these stories sometimes you are aligned with these communities yourself and have important and incredible insights that you can bring into research and then to share. Um, so I'm very optimistic that we're moving in the right direction, but it does come down to support for programs like mine, funding for scholarship and research, and ongoing support for scholars working in LGBTQ history, which is perennially under threat. Mm. Oh, it's so fascinating, though. Is there an interesting trans or non-binary person from history that we could all go away and look up and learn about who is l- not spoken about enough? Oh, well, none of them are spoken about enough. I mean, mm-hmm. there. I mean, are people aware of the Chevalier Deon? I mean, this this individual who lived part of their life as a man in France, uh, uh, a soldier and spy, uh, and part of their life uh, as a woman in London, using female pronouns, identifying themselves as such, but still disrupting London society with fencing matches and other activities. 
people just didn't know how to make heads or tails of this person. I think they're absolutely fascinating. Uh, I mean, that's, that's just, I mean, that's the classic example of, of an early person that's, that's, that's really important to early trans history. Um, mm. and it's just the start. Brilliant, brilliant one. Justin, thank you so much. What an interesting fly through, a, you know, <laughs> a small section of queer history, but fantastic nonetheless. And just one final question I want to ask you, who's your favorite person from queer, from queer history? Oh my gosh. I can never commit to just one person in, yeah. in history. I am not a historical monogamist. Okay. <laughs> That's your Tinder profile sorted. <laughs> Oh, so much stuff to go and Google. Thank you so much for that, Justin. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you thought at Homo Sapiens on Instagram, at Homo Sapiens Podcast on Facebook, hello at Homo Sapiens Podcast.com on email. Send us your agony uncles. Send us your pictures of your pets. Whatever you like. Loads of love, listeners. Thank you for getting in touch. Thank you for getting in touch. Thank you for listening. Goodness me. What am I? Let's go and see if any of those tree surgeons finish their lunch. 